Welcome to the weekly podcast of Capital Outlook from Wyoming PBS. Capital Outlook is a weekly show broadcast whenever the Wyoming legislature is in session from Cheyenne. To learn more, visit us at wyomingpbs.org. Welcome to Capital Outlook. I'm Craig Blumenshine from Wyoming PBS. This week on Capital Outlook, we'll touch on a variety of topics, from marijuana to the death penalty, to meet monopolies and the impacts on Wyoming's agribusiness community, the budget, and of course, K-12 education. We'll visit with the chairman of the Judiciary Committees of the Wyoming Legislature on the House side, that's Representative Jared Olson, and on the Senate side, that's Senator Tara Nethercott. Revenue is top of mind for two members from the Senate Revenue Committee, Chairman Cale Case and Senator Wendy Schuler. We'll have our weekly discussion with the leadership of the Wyoming Legislature, Senate President Dan Dockstetter and Speaker of the House, Dr. Eric Barlow. And we'll conclude Capital Outlook this week with a profile of Representative Mark Kinner. He's from Sheridan. All that's next on Capital Outlook, which starts now. This program is supported in part by a grant from the BNSF Railway Foundation, dedicated to improving the general welfare and quality of life in communities throughout the BNSF Railway Service Area. Proud to support Wyoming PBS. This program was funded in part by a grant from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food and beverage products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. By a grant from AARP, serving the needs and providing real possibilities for the over 50 population in Wyoming. AARP Wyoming, proud to support Wyoming PBS. Programming on Wyoming PBS is brought to you in part by Wyoming Humanities. Strengthening Wyoming democracy through the humanities for 50 years. ThinkY.org. Proud to support Wyoming PBS. And as we begin the fifth week of our 15th season here on Capital Outlook, it's our pleasure to be joined by the chairman of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, Senator Tara Nethercott and Representative Jared Olson, the Majority Whip of the Wyoming House of Representatives. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're going to bend away a little bit from education and budget and, and other issues that have taken a lot of oxygen in the Wyoming legislature this mm. year and talk about maybe some other issues that have fallen your way. Um, things like marijuana, things like death penalty, things like uh, anti-trade practices, and things like that. So let's start with maybe some of those. Representative Olson, I'll start with you. You have sponsored a bill. House Bill 209, um, on the regulation of marijuana. It came out of a due pass out of your committee mm -hmm. with a 6-3 vote and wasn't considered by the House. Why was it important for you to bring that bill? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I, and I talked about this in the, with the introduction of the legislation in the committee, surveying the population over the last few years in Wyoming and, and um, across the country, I think the needles really moved in terms of what people are interested in. And, and I think the needle appears pretty obvious that um, somewhere close to 80% um, in the latest survey of Wyomingites favor some type of medical um, legalization. 
Just below that dial is a, is a decriminalization favorability, and but still even legalization is, a, is above the needle. So that's important. For recreational use. For recreational, mm -hmm. sorry, yeah. So that's important to me, um, you know, that we're responsive um, to the people. I think that, in a, and then you mentioned in your opening, you know, we're going to move away from budget and education, but I, I think they are related. I think when we're talking about, and as we dive deeper, I'm sure, into some of our um, judicial issues, I mean, they're all budget they're all budget related. And so that's another sure. chief issue is um, when you look at incarceration, particularly, um, you know, I, we looked at those numbers with the Department of Corrections and it's $20 million. Um, because of minor drug offenses? That we spend in minor drug offenses mm -hmm. in just incarceration alone um, over a biennium. So if you, if you looked at the fiscal note on 209, you looked, what you saw was an education um, excise tax of 30%. Right. What you didn't see were some of these other um, cost savers for the state, the, the $20 million biannually that uh, the state of Wyoming would not have for those incarcerations. So you're talking maybe a plus $50 million. Exactly. Yep. What are your thoughts? You're, you've been a prosecutor, you've been a defense attorney in your professional career, you both are attorneys. Is this a good time for Wyoming to kind of start thinking a little bit more seriously about the issue? I think the time is now. I do. As our surrounding states have passed the legalization of it, either for medical or for recreational, we really have to understand how Wyoming wants to address the continued uh, criminality and illegality associated with it. So in connection to the chairman's comments about the costs associated with it, there are significant costs on our criminal justice system uh, associated with folks traveling through the state that might be in possession of legal marijuana from their state. and. I-25. I-25 and, and Interstate 80, of course, sure. are prime targets for increasing um, activity associated with those. And how Wyoming wants to address that. Do we want to put that burden on our criminal justice system, make criminals of out-of-state people in Wyoming, and even criminalize some of those residents in Wyoming who are going out-of-state? I think it's a difficult conversation. I think we need to be mindful of the history and what we know about the drug, mm -hmm. that it is dangerous, that it has an impact, mm -hmm. and we need to be cognizant of that. I would push back on some of the data associated with um, our, our costs associated with Department of Corrections impacts, what we do know about those offenders who are incarcerated in our prison systems. You know, about 70% of those are violent crimes and sex crimes, and those are who our inmate populations are. The remaining percentage of those really are habitual offenders who find themselves back in the system as a result of probation revocations from a failure to be law-abiding. So I, I don't think that we have a situation in Wyoming where we're sending uh, minor drug offenders to our, our penal systems. It's just not occurring in that way. I want to go to talk about uh, incarceration, corrections, and, and um, Wyoming's uh, uh, prison system. Um, Senator Nethercott, you suggested to me in an interview we conducted um, a few years ago, you said, and I'm paraphrasing this, but essentially Wyoming uh, has a relative low recidivism rate. It's an indication that Wyoming Department of Corrections is working. That was a few years ago, and we've had budget cuts. We've had change in administration now under the Department of Corrections. What is your view today? I am confident and hopeful for our Department of Corrections. Our new director, Dan Shannon, is top-notch, a world-class director who really is advancing forward and visionary policies associated with corrections. And so I think that we will continue to see the types of results we have historically received under different leadership and throughout the years. I do know that they are challenged with increasing budget cuts. Corrections is a very difficult 
um, area. It's very costly. It's very expensive as a result of, again, a lack of efficiency of resources in our state from having to hold large prison systems with minority populations and um, a, and a, a hard-to-gather workforce. So we're having to bring in medical providers from um, out of local jurisdictions, and, and it's mental just very health costly. providers as well. Right. So correctional officers, healthcare providers, all of the kind of wraparound services that you need in a prison system are difficult to get in some of the smaller communities where our prisons are located, therefore increasing our costs. So we have to be mindful of that and mm -hmm. recognize those challenges that our Department of Corrections faces just inherently as a result of those prison locations. So year after year, we've heard um, that it is really difficult to recruit corrections officers. Mm. Has that changed at all? Is that still a, a big issue? Is it concerning from a public safety perspective, Representative? I, I, I don't think that overall it's changed, but I think it has the potential to change. I think um, mentioning um, the new director of Department of Corrections, I, I, I think he's a rock star. And uh, I'm very excited for the reforms that he has. And I think that's, that's on the top of his agenda is to try to address um, that issue. And I think in Wyoming, there's just a lot of variables that, that factor in. I think the location of our um, state pen factors into that as well in terms of, um, you know, it's not, Rollins is not a population center. Sure. It's just not. And um, it's, not a, it's not a destination either. So when you're trying to recruit um, from other areas of the state or even out of the state, trying to get um, certain talent. The, the pay scale is an issue, but also, you know, those variables that we have little control over, the, the state pen being constitutionally located where it is, um, you know. But I, I'm hopeful that, um, that uh, the director can address some of the, I think, more internal um, issues, pay, um, culture, and things of that nature. You have year after year um, been concerned recently about the death penalty in yes. Wyoming. I think we might have differing opinions here. Just a little bit. Our discussion today. Um, let's take the affirmative first and we'll come back to you, Senator. Why is it important for Wyoming to abolish the death penalty? Well, you know, for me personally, I've, all, I've approached it primarily from a moral position. Um, and, that, you know, that's always been my position is that I, I don't, th I think, you know, that in in our laws, no matter what they are inside of our books that enshrine what it is we say that our citizens can do, can't do, should do, shouldn't do, what, however we say it, those reflect our values as a state. And I think the death penalty prime example. Is that the value we want to hold that we believe um, that the only way to enact justice is to take a life for a life? I think that's inconsistent. Um, I'm pro-life. I'm a pro-life conservative. and so. I believe I have to be consistent across the board. That means protecting innocent life, and it means protecting life from birth to natural death. So that's number one for me. I do think there's a fiscal consideration for the state, and that's been a conversation that we've been having for years. What is the, what is the fiscal impact? We know about our death penalty defense fund, which is an appropriation um, just under $2 million, one, I think it's 1.7. Um, that rolls over and kicks in in the, in the event um, of, of, a, of a trial. Capital case, yeah. Of a capital case, yeah. You know, there are other, there are other costs associated with um, the death penalty um, both on both sides, and I think that's a conversation we, we have yet to actually have uh, in the state of Wyoming, which is, look at the, just on the prosecution side, the costs are still borne, um, and they're borne by the state, which is a, um, and the, and not by the counties, which I think is a, creates a, a fundamental issue that uh, counties choose to prosecute 
um, but the state pays pays both the defense and pays um, uh, reimbursement to the uh, to the counties. You know, they pay about a quarter of their prosecution costs through the budget. So I think there's a fundamental issue there, and and the the biggest fundamental issue that occurs there is what we have yet to really pull out in the data is how the death penalty is applied in Wyoming. It's applied inconsistently. If you look at the counties that prosecute, the counties that, that it's not applied consistently across counties. And I believe that that could be a budgeting issue. It could be that, um, that uh, prosecutorial offices that don't have the funding to pursue a capital case, don't have the time to devote to it, the, the cost of expert witnesses, etc. We saw that with Natrona County who recently came to um, the Appropriations Committee to ask for extra appropriation for experts. If they don't have it, they don't pursue a capital case. And the ones that have it pursue a capital case. And that doesn't make sense. If I commit the same crime in Laramie County that sure. I commit um, in, uh, pick your, you know, Weston sure. County, Weston County yeah. same, same fact scenario, but the budget is what decides <clears throat> whether there's a capital case. I think that's a constitutional issue. Senator, should the death penalty stay on the books? Well, I do think that's a question uh, that we can that we should continue to reevaluate year after year. It's it's very difficult conversation to have, and I don't think anyone is really pro death penalty in that 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 concept where we enjoy um, what is generally a very dark and gruesome sure. conversation. Uh, th the finances uh, surrounding it are, I think, up to interpretation. I know that the budget appropriation allotted to the public defender's office is only utilized when there is actually a case. So it's actually not being appropriated or expended year after year after year. It is only when the rare circumstances occurs in this state where a capital case is pursued. What we do know is that the death penalty in those capital cases are used as a negotiation tool in a case where someone is facing, no doubt, a life without parole situation, the crime underlying the action uh, is severe and heinous and significant that would result in that type of outcome. And so when a defendant is choosing his options of whether or not to go to a lengthy and costly and emotionally burdensome and technical jury trial, uh, they're going to take that choice when they have no other option other than life without parole. And so if you have the death penalty as an ability, as a negotiating tool, as gruesome and as difficult as that may be, it's quite effective. And the irony exists that those defendants who would take the lives of another typically choose the one where they can save their own. So I, I do think... And in turn, the state, the burden of this very fiscally challenging and emotionally challenging trial. Right. So, uh, so a jury trial of a capital case or even life without parole is going to be lengthy. It's going to be costly. It's going to require a significant amount of experts associated with DNA, crime lab. It all depends on the type of crime committed, of course. But make no mistake, jury trials are very, very expensive um, and very difficult on the community, and not to mention the victims. Two more um, um, bills I want to talk about. We don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to mention them. One is uh, Senate File 124 that you've carried, um, Senator Nethercott. Defending Wyoming Business, Trade, and Commerce Amendments. This came out of issues surrounding the pandemic and meat and then agribusiness. How's that progressing? Yeah, a really important bill that uh, we, the country has been experiencing a challenge associated with probably a monopoly associated with the four big meat packers. And our ag industry is well aware of this concern. They've been trying to address it for many years. It really elevated in its, um, in its activity and concerns about antitrust concerns regarding these monopolies of the four big meat packers that control 80% of this country's uh, production of meat. And so 
in 2015, it became really relevant and really um, apparent that there was some market manipulation occurring. And of course, when the pandemic hit, uh, it became really fever pitch. And our attorney general's office with other attorneys general across the region uh, initiated litigation and wanted to take investiga investigatory action associated with the actions of these meat packers. What we saw is that in northern Colorado, which much of Wyoming's meat is uh, shipped and processed to, the closing of processing plants. And the closures of those plants is believed that it wasn't really authentically done, it wasn't done as a result of a lack of a market conditions, but was done intentionally uh, by the meat packers to manipulate the market, causing a, a, an impact to consumers who are purchasing meat. You, you saw a lack of availability of meat in your grocery stores and the costs increasing. You saw me run into the store buying more than I probably should have. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, what caused that? Was it the pandemic or was it something more? And, and it is the belief of many states and the ag producers and those attorney generals who represent us that it, it was not uh, as a result of the virus or as a result of any sure. other consequence from that, but really was an effort for market manipulation. And so the bill uh, empowers the attorney general with additional tools that would have been very advantageous for us to have in place before uh, in order to take action against some of these market manipulation tactics. Representative, you heard that in your committee. Yeah, I mean, it, I think Senator just hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's her baby, and uh, I think it's coming at the right time. I, I agree that had we had those tools in the tool belt, um, if, if in fact, and I do believe that market manipulation is the true issue, um, we would have been able to, uh, to get into suit and address it earlier. You know, um, lawsuits take a long time, but uh, I, I think it's a good time to put them in the tool belt. Last bill I want to talk about kind of quickly is uh, Senate File 151. You brought this, um, Senator Nethercott, also. Um, pharmacy freedom of choice. It was assigned to the Labor Committee. You asked that it not be heard. What's the issue? So the issue is uh, the inability of Wyoming uh, patients to use their local pharmacists, primarily as a result of our, our insurance company in Wyoming, our primary one. We really only have two in the state. And one big one. And one big one, entering into contracts with national pharmacies, you know, for cost savings, which is certainly critical and certainly important as we know the cost of healthcare is increasing. But as a result of that cost saving measure, uh, Wyoming patients who need medicines are having to go out of state for their medicine. And it's being shipped in from out of state and really diverting access to the local pharmacy. And so I find that's an unacceptable result for Wyoming patients who have a relationship with their local pharmacist and their local pharmacist knows their healthcare history, cares about them as the person, uh, as opposed to receiving a, a call randomly from a call center from an out-of-state national pharmacy uh, to ship it in randomly. And it's just, I think, having a negative impact on our patients. So much more to discuss and we just, we just don't have time. I was hoping to get to your thoughts on education, Medicaid like we've asked everyone else. These are hard, hard votes. And, um, and I apologize for not being able to, to get to that, but I wanna thank you both for joining us. Um, a lot of very complex issues that are very important. So thanks for joining us on Capital Outlook. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. We'll now talk to the um, Senate side of the Revenue Committee with Senate, uh, the Chairman of the Revenue Committee, Senator Kale Case, and also, Rep or, excuse me, Senator Wendy Schuler, also a member of the Revenue Committee. Stay with us. And as we continue on with this week's Capital Outlook, we're going to talk revenue again, this time with the Senate side. 
of the picture. Um, Chairman of the Senate Revenue Committee, Kale Case, and Revenue Committee member, Senator Wendy Schuler. Thank you so much for joining us here on Capital Outlook. It's very nice Thank to be you. here. Yeah. I want to talk now more about revenue. And in a letter to the Uinta County Herald, Senator, about two or three weeks ago, you said this. You said, we can't go on, we can go on at length about cuts, but the bottom line is we can't cut to the bone without, without also generating some revenue. We must diversify our tax base and our economy. So many legislators right here have said the same thing, and it's so difficult. What's your vision of what that means? Well, I, I believe that we have to have cuts because of the situation that we're in. You know, our budget shortfalls are, are going to require that we take some cuts, and as long as we are very, you know, uh, considerate with how we do them and, and really make sure that they're focused and, and they don't hurt people too badly. I think some programs are going to get hurt pretty badly, but I think there's a there's just a point there, a tipping point where you just have to say no more, and uh, we've got to come up with some revenue, and that's the bottom line. Is I, I think of it like a muscle, you know, you can cut away muscle and you, the skin, but when you get down to the bone, there's just no more that you can cut and be and, and feel good about it. And so I I believe we've got to have some. Do your revenue. constituents, before we give Senator Case a chance to chime in, do they believe that? this budget has been cut to the bone? Or do you still have constituents who say, too much fat in Cheyenne, come on? I've got a little bit of both. Uh, I've got a smaller probably group that think that we just really need to do more of a, um, a cut to our state agencies than we have. Uh, there's some that really believe that we haven't cut education as, as much as we should. And then we have others that just feel like everything we've done this year it, thus far has been pretty devastating and it's really gonna cause some some pain. And, and, uh, and I believe, I'm kind of right in the middle. I think that we we probably needed to maybe cut a little sooner than we have in some areas, but I just don't want to see us lose programs that are valuable to our constituents, uh, our seniors, our our students, our teachers, um, you know, uh, our disabled folks. Uh, you know, there's just so many programs out there that I feel like are, are really going to be hurting. And we'll get to K-12 funding here in a little bit, Senator Case. Well, you know, um, I've tended to support all the cuts that have come around. With some exceptions, you know, we all have our important favorites, I think, and things that we really know enough about to understand that we're getting in a severe situation. But I've, I've tried to support every revenue measure that's come about, and that's where we're really deficient uh, is, you know, we just don't have a lot of revenue opportunities. And until we get some revenue measures, we're going to have to look at more cuts. So I would like to see folks in Wyoming really put talk about how they want to see this diversified revenue stream. You know, we hear that, we hear that, we're not getting the votes for it. Nothing is moving forward in the legislature except for the, possibly the tolling bill. That's probably the biggest thing on the table. I-80 tolling is what you're talking about. Yes, a, sir. A chance to have that maybe implemented in three to four years, depending on how the state and the federal government negotiate with one another, essentially. Um, you're gonna get a chance to maybe decide on a half penny tax for education, again, maybe in the future. Have you given thought to K-12 funding? It's coming your way. It's going to, the House bill mm -hmm. has now passed the House. It's coming, coming to the Senate. Um, among other things will be a half-penny sales tax if the LISRA account, the Legislative Stabilization Reserve account, drops below $650 million, projected to maybe happen in three, four, five years. Mm -hmm. Is that half-penny something you both can support, Senator Case? I think I can, but, you know, I, I really don't get to decide. And I'm not sure the Senate is going to be receptive. I would suspect that, that that tax increase in the House Education Bill is not going to make it through the Senate. Let's be pretty realistic about that. And why is that? 
Um, is it a recognition that the savings account is too large, that we really don't need revenue, there's still more to cut? What's your perception of why that is? Well, we're talking about education, and there definitely is a prevailing feeling, and I think I share a lot of it, that, that education has not received the cuts that the rest of state government has, and that um, there's plenty of folks that have laid down the line and say, I will not vote for a tax increase until we see some significant cuts in education. I am not that person. I am supporting uh, cuts and I'm supporting revenue measures both because we're so far from coming together. And I do get kind of annoyed with lots of people that say, I'm not ready to support revenue measures until we do this. And I'm like, you know, it takes so long to stand up revenue measures. We need to support those and be very conscientious of both the education budget and the general budget. The primary cuts that you'll have a chance to vote on from the House Education Bill have to do with um, ghost health insurance for the fact that the state is paying for everyone's health insurance when, in fact, not every educator or school district employee, employee takes health insurance. But that's a significant cut. It grows to about $59.7 million dollars up to 60, $66 million in the third year when fully implemented, and then theoretically grows at a higher rate than the other escalators because health insurance has done that historically. You so, gotta remember that all that stuff though is, it's the model. It's kind of affecting the outside of the model, and it's, so it's, it's changing the assumptions of the model with respect to teachers, health insurance, sure. these kind of things. It's, it's not really going in and surgically cutting. Absolutely goes, not. Yeah. It, the block grant is still there. Exactly. And, and, but it is a cut, mm -hmm. no doubt. So where do you stand um, at this point? Is well, honestly, I, I, would, I would be in favor of the, the penny or the half yeah. cent, mm -hmm. either one. Um, and, I, and, and for that reason, I think there's you know, the stability of, of having um, you know, revenue coming in that, that would be sustainable, I think, is probably the real reason. Now, can education take some cuts? Yes, and I, and I agree with, with the senator here that I think we probably haven't taken as much as some. My biggest problem I had with, with the cuts uh, that were mentioned was the fact that we took the local control away from our, our superintendents and school boards, and uh, we as a legislature made the, some of the decisions on our bill anyway, and same with the House. And I really believe that if we gave it the superintendents the opportunity in their districts to make the decisions as to where those cuts needed to come, I think they would do a great job. So, but I would, I would definitely uh, advocate for both the penny and the half penny. When you say we, to me, it almost has a dual meaning because you're a longtime <laughs> educator mm -hmm. since retired, but over 40 years as an educator. Yeah, I was there a long time and I'm still smiling. So I think that's a good <laughs> thing. But no, I, I, even in my own district, I mean, and I taught in a couple different districts, I, I, could, I could always see some places where we could cut. And uh, mm -hmm. I believe since the state agencies took 10%, uh, the, you know, education has got to take some cuts. And I, but I just feel like those superintendents and those school boards really, ultimately that local control that we like to give them, I would like to have seen us say, hey, let's see what you can do in your own district. Uh, instead of saying, here's how many kids you're gonna have in a classroom, here's what we're gonna do with ghost teachers or, or ghost insurance or whatever. Um, however, maybe this is where we had to start to, to get it done, I'm not sure. I think a lot of it becomes as to what is defensible in court and maybe what isn't, so we'll see. <laughs> as that debate happens um, in the next few days in the Senate. A couple bills I want to ask you about, Chairman Case. You're going to have the opportunity to either bring House Bill 151 to the table or not in your committee, which is the Rolling Stock mm -hmm. Tax Exemption Sunset Extension. Mm -hmm. The governor broadly has said he supports removing exemptions, sales tax exemptions. Um, what are your thoughts on that bill? Well, it's it's a bill that has a, you know, the, it's this is for the 
uh, repair and refurbishing of railroad rolling stock. Mm -hmm. It's ha that tax exemption has been on and off and on and off, and we actually have data that shows, uh, you know, whether that does any good. And I'm going to submit to you that it doesn't do any good. It was scheduled to come off this coming year, and, and is yeah. as we speak today. Yeah, that's what the law says. Right. I want to stand with that. I really think that we've had such a difficult time dealing with exemptions and removing them. You've got the governor, you've got almost everybody agrees that we should be getting rid of exemptions in Wyoming. And just here's an example. If you look at South Dakota, their sales tax is a third more powerful than our sales tax at the same rate because they tax a lot more things. And Wyoming just has a lot of exemptions. And this was one that was scheduled to come off. We voted to make it come off. And now we're going to change the rules. People would like to see it be gradually extended. And I'll tell you what, if you want to get something out of the legislature, you, the exemptions are a good target. Um, it's a nice way to do something for your industry. The local economic development people pile on. But the truth is, the econ econometrics of it aren't very good. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I, the governor wants to get rid of exemptions. Kilcase wants to get rid of exemptions. We need to get rid of exemptions. And, but yet, two of my committee members have signed on to this bill to extend the exemption. And so I'm going to let the committee uh, tell me what to do, and we'll figure that out. What are your thoughts on the rolling stock well, exemption yeah, as, extension? As a rule, I, I agree with, with Senator Case on, on a lot of these exemptions. Uh, this particular one, because it hits my community so, diff, you know, so really harder than probably any place else in the state, we have over 100 people employed at this particular facility that, that repairs these, um, it would really t it would be a big hit for our community. And, and the reason I kind of really pushed towards trying to, to keep it is because we had the pandemic. And so all of a sudden, a, a company that was ready to expand and, and add more people to their, um, uh, co their company, all of a sudden had to start laying off. And that, that affected, I mean, before I even left, I, I know there were folks that were having a difficulty that were laid off in that particular area to try and find jobs. And these jobs that are there are really, really good paying jobs for our community. And I, and I basically I say that, you know, they still are paying sales and use tax. Those folks that live there, you know, they're still buying things, they're buying cars, you know, they live in our community. And, and so they, they are still providing tax, um, tax base to our, our communities. We have talked a little bit about interim topics. What is on the top of your list to carry this revenue discussion forward in a thoughtful way? Um, keeping in mind of all of the time and effort that has been given to revenue issues before that have just fallen flat. All right, well, let's remember that we have a lot of new committee members that mm -hmm. haven't been really through the tax structure discussions about Wyoming. We have a new house chairman, uh, you know, great knowledgeable guy, but we've kind of got to bring everybody along. There's some ideas. I, th I think you're going to see more effort in terms of the electricity taxing proposals that were advanced, remembering we need to tax what we what we ship out of the state. And so um, we were starting to get some traction on an electricity. It's basically a generation a gross receipts tax and see where that goes. We've still got uh, this exemption discussion and maybe we could solidify on some of that. A lot of education to do. We have to remember that if we are going to move tax measures forward, there is a delay. An excise tax like a sales tax or other type of excise tax, we could do that earlier than a property tax, which is way out there. You know, and we're still monitoring as we move into the uh, ad valorem mineral taxes being paid on a monthly basis. We'll be tracking that. There's, there's a lot of work to do, but uh, hopefully the legislature gets around to wanting to do taxes because they, 
Wyoming needs us to have a diversified tax base. I would totally agree. I think that we've just uh, put our head in the sand and, and thought we could just get by. At least there's some folks that, that we work with over there on our side that just uh, don't believe that we have cut deep enough and that we need to look at revenue. And I think we need to do both. We need to make some cuts, but we also need to look at revenue and, and get after it and see if we can't bring some, something that's a little more sustainable. We can't rely on oil and gas and coal as we've done in the past to pay our bills. You're learning more by the minute. I'm learning more by the minute about what the American Rescue Plan might mean to Wyoming. Um, and what we're learning is kind of changing by the minute too. Mm -hmm. But are you worried, are you concerned? Coupled with an, perhaps an unanticipated uptick in oil, that the state is getting a little more money than it had planned for. Now we've got this federal monies coming in that may or may not have less strings attached to it. That now we just don't have to talk about revenue for a while. Every single member, I think, um, would love to have an excuse not to vote for a tax. So it doesn't take much noise in the background to make him say, well, this isn't the right time. And we see it all the, t we see it all the time. So uh, I'm like, mm, come on, it's all noise, it's all temporary, it's all transit. We really have to focus on uh, the long-term sustainability of Wyoming. So I hope, it, I hope it doesn't look too rosy and I hope it doesn't uh, diffuse discussion in the interim about really getting down and being serious. Right now, the I-80 tolling bill is going to be the most serious effort we have. Yep. Senator Schuler, last word today. Well, same thing. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm right on board with, with Senator Case. I, I hope the money doesn't muddle the waters mm -hmm. to the point where people say, oh, we've got this money. We don't need to do any of these cuts. We do need to, we do, need to do cuts, but we need revenue, and we need to find some ways. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm more of a fan of the sales tax just because it, it, it mm -hmm. comes in a little quicker, and I think it's, it's something that seems a little more fair and equitable. Um, but I think the bottom line is, if you do look at all the studies, you know, we are the next to lowest state in the country with our tax burden. And we've just had it so easy that we've been blessed. And, and so Wyoming residents just feel like if there's anything out there that they're going to have to raise taxes on, that it's, it's a terrible thing. And I say, you know, we've gotten a lot of really good services over the years, and we haven't had to pay much for those services. So it's time. We'll follow you closely in the interim, for sure. Chairman Case, Senator Schuler, thank you, thank you so very much for joining us on Capital Outlook. Thank you both. It's a pleasure. Real pleasure. It's now time to visit with the leadership of the Wyoming Legislature. That's next. Stay with us. And as we continue on with Capital Outlook, again, it's our pleasure to have our weekly discussion with the leadership, Representative Eric Barlow, the Speaker of the House, and Senator Dan Dockstetter, the President of the Senate. Welcome to you both again. Good morning. Good morning. First, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, the schedule's been altered a little bit this week. It's announced that the legislature will actually uh, work uh, the Tuesday and Wednesday after Easter. Well, what came into that decision? Well, I think that, the, um, as you know, we're, we're at a 34-day session. We have, um, or that's what our plan has been. Two days, we got knocked offline, if you will. Big storm, you know, historic storm, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, but we still have work to do. And so the decision, that, you know, is do we work a Saturday or maybe two? Well, that puts us into Easter, Easter weekend. Um, so I think there's just a sense that we still need to do work. We can do it afterwards. I think many of the members on the House side will be um, participating virtually. They'll go home for Easter weekend, spend that three days with their families. And then uh, Tuesday, if we need Wednesday, we'll have that. The other thing is, and um, you know, just be honest, there may be some veto overrides we need to consider too. So um, we need that three days after you know we come back. We, the governor has three days after he we we send a bill to him, the House and the Senate, to uh, 
to veto, and we'll have that available to us. Mr. Speaker, you talked about um, um, the education bill that ultimately came out of the House and now is coming to the Senate needs to be equitable, adequate, and defensible. And I think you're convinced that the House's product is that. Well, and, and to be fair, I don't, I don't know that the House's product is all those things, but that's what our educational program needs to be. And so what we looked at, what, I, what we brought, uh, hopefully sent forward to the Senate, is the tools to continue that, to continue to provide that equitable, adequate, and defensible education um, budget and program. And, um, and we, you know, we built four, four legs in that, uh, in that bill. And the Senate can pick and choose. I hope, I hope they'll consider it a buffet, and they can pick and choose, and then we'll go, you know, go from there. But uh, that, that was certainly our effort, was to put every tool on the table. Those four legs I think you're talking about are diversions from the LSRA, a half-penny sales tax that will back up the LSRA should it ever fall below $650 million, um, cuts phase in um, with a different uh, approach than has really been talked about before. These are ghost insurance. Uh, money is the, the, the money that the state pays to districts for insurance for its employees and not all employees, A, are hired, not all employees use the health insurance. So there's substantial savings to be there and then also potential um, American Rescue Plan monies. Is that how you see what's coming to your desk? That's correct. Well, uh, we'll look at those four legs as they come over as this program airs. We'll be studying the buffet closely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to envision school as a buffet, but yes, that's, that's kind of what it is. But I mean, one of the big deals in the bill, and when I was doing my scorekeeping at home, um, I didn't think it was going to pass. A couple votes changed at the end, and the half penny sales tax that may be invoked in three, four, five years if the reserve account drops below a certain amount of money um, ended up in the House bill. Can it survive in the Senate is the big question. That'll be a big question as we look over the House's work. We appreciate all the work they went into. That was an in-depth, uh, that's an in-depth piece of legislation that came over. And there was a lot of discussion, a lot of work, a lot of research that went into that. And we, got, we have to respect that work as it comes into the Senate. We'll take a hard look. Is the support there for the tax? Early on, it wasn't. We'll continue to uh, visit with each of our members, but that, that is... Uh, probably will be a, a challenging point in the legislation. Representative Simpson deserves a lot of credit in this work, it seems to me. <clears throat> Absolutely, actually, you know, Representative Simpson brought forth a lot of good ideas. One, one thing I think I take a step back, the bill, the bill is actually a pretty big bill. There's four concepts. But the heart of the bill is actually what our educational model is. How we actually- Codified, if you will. Codifying mm -hmm. the funding model of education in the state of Wyoming. And it's, it's not that it, it is, hasn't been law before, but it's been in a lot of different places. So we've basically tied it all to one place. So now what this, the House had and now the Senate has is they have everything. I, and maybe the buffet comment wasn't the right one, but now they have the entire menu. They can actually understand everything on the menu. And, um, and then there's policy choices in it as, in all of those. So they can, they can have a look at the uh, number of teachers per student. They can have a look at the number of principals per you know, student body, et cetera. Yep. All of that's there, it's on the table. And that, and that quite honestly is, I'm not saying it's a first, it could be done other, before, but this is the first time I think they're gonna get the 
it, say, hey, I can tweak anything in this model. It has been difficult to figure all of that out, and I've, I've studied it, and I think you're right. Um, and to put it all in one place adds to this transparency goal I think that a lot of people have, have spoken about. I think the good work of Representative Simpson helped us lead up to that point. While not all of his work was passed or accepted, it allowed us to take a deeper dive into a difficult topic and not to make light of it in, in reference to buffet. We respect our education sure. throughout the state, but it does give us a good review now uh, taking the House's work. and. Uh, bringing a final product back out that will will protect our schools, our education, but at the same time put some reality in the end of this uh, spending. Just a, one last word. I think that it allows um, you to deflect a little bit, and I think you did, that even though this was a 25-page amendment given late in the game, really, it codified a, a lot of that amendment that, that we've been talking about here that became the education bill really has been what's been out there already and just a small part of it really has been. It's, it's basically what, how we've been operating. Yeah. It's how we've been operating for almost 15, 15 years. Let's move on to um, a couple of other issues. I, wanted, I do want to talk about Medicaid expansion. It got a lot of discussion in the House and now it comes to the Senate. Mr. President, you told us maybe two or three weeks ago you didn't think the votes were there, but now it has passed now the House. Now that the House has passed, you're asking, does that change the picture? Has it changed the picture? And, quite frankly, ARP money may factor into this decision, too. Right. We have to be careful with the, the ARP money and how we predetermine where, where and how that will be used. Working with what we have now, the Medicaid expansion may sway some votes now that it's passed in the House. But I sense there still may not be the votes in the Senate to move it through. But in the next uh, day or two, we're going to be taking a harder look at it, and we'll see where we're at. Uh, I, I think that's one of the bigger topics in the, in the state as far as sure. what we hear from people across the state. And that's why we talk about it, quite frankly. Um, the Speaker voted for the bill. Have you landed on where you, you'll come down on the bill yet, Mr. President? I'm going to be, be, I'm going to be reserved because... It, once we move into a program that we open up a new door of spending in a time where we're not quite sure, setting the art money aside, we're not quite sure how that will all unfold in the next few years. Ultimately, I feel my responsibility is to make sure we have a, a stable Wyoming, uh, the financial picture is stable. And if we predetermine how that money is going to be spent and it doesn't work out, then we've got a program that we will have difficulty supporting because with the progressing years, more of that financial responsibility comes back to the state. Isn't it true that if, as the bill is written, if the federal government decides to give Wyoming less than 90% of the cost of the program, Wyoming can back out of the program? It's my understanding we can. So then is your concern that more people than anticipated will enroll in the program? Is that your base oh, concern? I anticipate many people will enroll in the program. comes to money, I'm going to be very cautious. And it was presented as a House initially as almost a net positive, um, initially. Is that, are you concerned about the long-term fiscal challenges that a Medicaid bill, expansion bill in Wyoming will bring? Um, so I, first of all, I, I'd say that if more people um, enroll, it's because they're in need of access to health care or a, a methodology. Um, so that doesn't bother me. I, I understand the fiscal component that my, the, my good colleague, the president, is talking about. But if, if folks, there's a need. There's a need. There's no question. Um, as far as the, um, the fiscal, you know, I think five years off, it's, it's, a, it's a wash. 
for five years it's a wash based on what we understand about what the federal government is offering. It's a wash. Now we're also going to get a billion dollars of other money. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to saying, you know what, if we want to backstop where we are and just in case, in case we, there's a concern about the federal government not doing it, or not upholding, I'm fine with setting some money aside to do that. Last word I'll give to you about the issue, uh, Mr. President. It seems to me a lot of what we heard in the House is that we have been trying for years and years and years to solve the health care problem in Wyoming, and we haven't been able to do it. This helps. It's hard to disagree with that, I think. It does help. We have to be careful, though, with Wyoming's future. Just immediately fall back on federal funds. I'm going to use a word of caution with that. I'm going to be very careful when it comes to the future of Wyoming and the fiscal picture. On to another topic. Um, a lot of legislation was proposed for this session that didn't see the light of day, Mr. President. What do you, uh, what do you think about that? I brought these notes because I'm always, people will call up and say, what about that bill or the, this bill or the number? And if we hesitate, this is why. 690 total bills requested, 249 total drafts canceled, 441 total bills and resolutions jacketed, meaning they're put into the process. 303 individual legislator bills numbered for introduction, 138 committee bills numbered for introduction. When I speak of workload, now, now you understand. Oh, by the way, there's only 34 days. Sure. Right. <laughs> but but um, legitimately, primarily, these are constituent concerns that probably ignite this process for a legislator to bring this bill forward and stuff, and then constituents say, well, geez, we need to have our really important issue to be heard, and it's not... They've gone to their representative or their senator and said, this is a concern. Can we, can we make a, a minor adjustment or a very big adjustment, which takes more floor time on both sides of the building? Well, it's a pleasure to visit with you both. Um, next week will be our final discussion. I hope that we can have a good conversation of what your top priorities are this coming interim. And we'll look forward to discussing that with you then. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for so much for joining us. On now to our Capital Outlook profile with Representative Mark Kinner. He lives in a home that's almost as old as the Capitol. That's next. Stay with us. And as we continue on with Capital Outlook, it's time for our Capital Outlook profile. And we're pleased to be visiting with Representative Mark Kinner from Sheridan County. Representative, it's good to visit with you again. Uh, greetings, Craig. It's great to see you. And I sure wish we were in person uh, in, in the Capital Extension or, or somewhere, maybe in the historic uh, chambers. And boy, wouldn't that be great. But yeah. And I hope we can certainly get back to the, the real world soon. I want to talk to you about your childhood as we kind of start talking here. You weren't, you weren't born in Wyoming. You, you saw the light a little bit later. You were born in Danbury, Connecticut. And I was looking online at what Danbury, Connecticut looked like. And to me, you could almost take Main Street of Sheridan, Wyoming, where you live, and impose it on... Danbury, Connecticut's Main Street, and it looks almost the same to me. Is that what you remember? Yeah, it is. And of course, um, I'll share with you that, that that's sort of part of my story, quite honestly, Craig, is that, you know, I went to high school uh, in a place called uh, West Reading, Connecticut, a, a school called Joe Barlow High School. 
And I was a, I was a farm kid, quite honestly. I, I worked on a dairy farm after school and milked cows and put up hay in the summer and it did all kinds of things. I did trail work for a nature conservancy project in the summers. And, and you know, I watched that farm being gobbled up by uh, land developments. And then I watched all the towns, you know, changing and so on. We were, we were quite honestly a bedroom community for New York City. Uh, and, and that just wasn't me. So when I got ready for, uh, you know, considering places, and it's a long story we won't get into, but I, I did have an opportunity with my parents to spend some vacation time in the West and uh, in the mountains. And I fell in love with the mountains and I knew I wanted to go to college in the West. And so I applied to the University of Wyoming, to Montana State University and to Colorado State University. And I, and you know what, really go Pokes because there you go. the first one I heard from was the University of Wyoming. And I said, that's a sign that I am supposed to go. Fast forward, so that was in 1970, and so as an 18-year-old, I'm moving to Wyoming as an 18-year-old, and and uh, you know, and then in, in 72, another brother came, and 73, another brother came, and in 73, think of this: my parents moved from Connecticut to to Casper. So, and then my little brother uh, finished high school in Casper. So we, I call it sort of a modern-day wagon train, uh, and there, my my parents knew that when I was here and fell in love with it and, you know, and, and wanted to continue to stay here. And my brothers did as well, that they were never going to see us if less they moved to Wyoming. So here they go. You worked in Casper for a while as you started your finance career. I did. So, so yeah, uh, upon graduation from the university, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I, I knew I wanted to get into the business world. And I thought, how am I going to do that and really, really try to focus in on what might be the best, you know, uh, environment for me? Well, I heard about a program at a bank in Casper that was an officer training program, and it exposes you to all the different departments of the bank. You were a teller for a while and, you know, all, and then you were, you know, a loan collector and so on. And, and you know what, I applied for that and and was accepted uh, by First Interstate Bank. Well, it was First National Bank in those days. And, and of course, there's a whole long story there, which would take up too much time to really get into. But I said, well, hey, that's a great idea. I will go to work for the bank. Uh, I knew I always had a business interest. And then I will probably run into a business that over time I would really like to get into. And but you know what? I I couldn't find anything I liked any more than being a banker and taking care of people's businesses and helping them. And I, I really, uh, once I was exposed to the business world uh, through actually the dealer uh, department handling businesses, floor plan lines and, and financing cars for people, I just said, wow, the business world is where I want to be. And, and so uh, my first opportunity to get out of the the officer training program and go into the commercial lending department, I, I just jumped at it. And so that was, that was kind of fun. And actually I'll tell you, if, if you don't mind just a quick short story yeah. there. So it, the, in those days, it was a boom, it was a boom time in Casper. And uh, Tibby and I wanted to, uh, t by the way, Tibby uh, grew up around the state of Wyoming. Uh -huh. She, her parents were teachers and, 
And uh, when her dad retired, he was superintendent of schools in Crook County, but she went to high school in Lusk. And I, I tease um, uh, former speaker uh, Harshman that uh, Tibby went to the real NCHS, Niobrara County ah, High School. Of course, go. I get some pushback there, as you might imagine, right? We kind of joke about this a little bit, but it really has, it really rhymes well with Wyman's boom and bus cycle. While you were in Casper, you bought high and you sold low, and I'm talking about your home. Yeah, exactly. In fact, at one time, we had two homes, and they were both going down in value. And so I know what people go through. And Craig, I have to share with you that that left a lasting impact on me. Um, and, and I saved it and I still have it in my desk. It's, it's kind of buried a little bit, but I, I, it would take me a while to find it. But I know I could find it. That I took a photocopy of a set of keys that people walked into my office and threw the keys on my desk and said, Mark, we're out of money. We have no, we have no way of paying for our house mm. or for this particular car. We're taking the one car that's paid off and we have to leave Wyoming. And I took a photocopy of those keys because I always wanted to remember uh, that, that impact that that had on, on me, but also on our state. And so, you know, we're experiencing some of that right now, right? With coal sure. and with everything else. And I remember that clearly, but with two houses, both going down, when Tibby and I moved to Sheridan, we had to rent for almost five years because we didn't, the, the money that we had for down payments on a house was gone. And so we've, you know, personally gone through, you know, sort of the, the tough times around Wyoming and we get it when, you know, when people are struggling. And I think that's helped you know, me think about, you know, the work that I'm doing now in the legislation on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I, I don't forget that at all. Representative, your house is not 50 years old. It's not 75 years old. It's not 100 years old. It's even older than that. <laughs> Craig, uh, yeah, we, we live close to downtown Sheridan. And our house is actually, uh, it was built in 1897. And uh, it was built by a Jewish hide merchant named Benjamin Holstein, uh, a brick house. It's a, it's kind of a, a, they called it a poor man's Victorian. And Tibby and I have just always been in, intrigued by older homes. And this one really appealed to us. And I, I won't bore you with the whole story of how that happened. It ha we, we ended up with it through a friend. And, but actually uh, we're, we're only the third family to own wow. this house. Wow. And so we're trying to take care of it. We've lived here for 25 years and our kids, our daughter and her husband have indicated someday they would like to maybe continue to take care of the house. And so we're just really proud of the house's history in Wyoming. And he did a lot of things in Sheridan and uh, it built uh, some business buildings in downtown Sheridan and was quite a businessman here in Sheridan and didn't have his name on a lot of the streets and things like many of the other you know, former founders of, uh, of Sheridan. But my dad did some research uh, once upon a time, and I think it was in around the 1900 census. It said that the, that the language spoken in our home was Yiddish. And so that's kind of fun to think about that. Sure. And the history, sure. you know, of, you know, and of course our great history of our, our country, of people coming together from, from all places and uh, speaking all different languages and coming together to build our country and then, you know, in turn, build Wyoming. Wow, it's just, <laughs> I just love it.
And it's been wonderful getting to know you over the years, Representative. I, I certainly appreciate the time that you have spent with, with us. And I uh, look forward to continue seeing you again. So thank you so much for sitting down with us for this Capital Outlook Profile. Absolutely. And to our folks out there in Wyoming, good times are ahead. We'll work through this and uh, we'll be better and stronger when we do. This program is supported in part by a grant from the BNSF Railway Foundation, dedicated to improving the general welfare and quality of life in communities throughout the BNSF Railway Service Area. Proud to support Wyoming PBS. This program was funded in part by a grant from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food and beverage products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. By a grant from AARP, serving the needs and providing real possibilities for the over 50 population in Wyoming. AARP Wyoming, proud to support Wyoming PBS. Programming on Wyoming PBS is brought to you in part by Wyoming Humanities. Strengthening Wyoming democracy through the humanities for 50 years. Thinkwhy.org. Proud to support Wyoming PBS.